This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Good morning. Welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and I thank you for your time this Sunday morning. On September 28th, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln co-sponsored the 2022 Governor's Lecture in the Humanities as part of the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Affairs. The speaker that evening was noted historian and author Candace Millard, who held a free-form discussion and a Q&A session that was moderated by Nebraska public media reporter William Padmore. Here now is a replay of that discussion from September 28th of this year. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming. All right, Candice, we'll start from the beginning. So from Lexington to National Geographic, where in there did you discover your love for nonfiction storytelling? So I always loved to read. I loved actually any kind of storytelling. Um, as you said, I grew up in this small blue collar town in Ohio. Um, and what I loved to do, and my family fortunately also were all readers, we would go to the library. Um, every week we, we could walk there from our house and we would pick out our books. And um, I didn't have many books that were my own, but I, our house was filled with books because we had the library. And so I always knew that I wanted to do something with books, you know, and I thought I would be a teacher, I would be a librarian. Um, and so I, when I went to school, I thought, um, you know, my goal was to be an English professor. Um, but then I got to um, my master's program and I got to literary criticism and I hated literary criticism. I hated deconstructing the text. I always felt like it's just sucking all the joy out of reading, you know, for me at least. I apologize any English professors, but um, I, uh, I, and so I thought, okay, the, I, this, I don't want to get my PhD. I want to maybe try to write. and. Um, and I knew right away, I had always loved National Geographic magazine, and I, that was my goal. Um, but I had no idea how to get there. So I, I moved back home um, to Kansas City, moved back in with my parents, and um, penniless, you know, and um, finally uh, got a job with some, um, just some little trade journals here and there, and I found there was a 1-800 number for, um, it was supposed to be a jobs hotline for National Geographic. I have no idea how I found it, so this is in the early 90s, and, um, and so I would call it every single day, and there was never any jobs, you know, no jobs, no jobs. I find out later, it was like, the human resources job to keep people out, you know, not to get people in. And so then finally, and this is absolutely a true story, my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, it was my boyfriend's college roommate's twin brother's friend. That is not an exaggeration. Um, <laughs> so my boyfriend's college roommate's twin brother um, lived in Washington, D.C., which is where National Geographic is located. And he had spent um, six years in Sierra Leone in with the Peace Corps. And so I thought, that's, I need to join the Peace Corps, that way I can learn another language, have these experiences, and just kind of change my life and have something to write about, right? So you can say, I want to write, but you have to have something to write about, some life experiences. And um, so I went to Washington, D.C., and again, I'm making like, I don't know, maybe $18,000 a year at that point. And, but I had gone on a business trip, and I, so I had this... Um, 
had a voucher. I had like given somebody my seat, so I had a voucher, so I used that. And I had dinner with him that night. We were gonna go to the Peace Corps the next day. There was an opening in Madagascar that I was very excited about. But at the dinner, he said, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd work at National Geographic, but I have no idea how to make that happen. He said, we know I have a friend (laughs) who works there in the education department. Let's stop by and see him tomorrow. And we did, and he told me there was an opening in the research department of of the TV division. And, um, and so I got an interview and that went well. The only problem was I had to go back to Kansas City to my job and they wanted then me to come back to DC. Mm. And I had no more voucher, travel voucher. <laughs> and I remember very, very well, it, the, I had to buy a ticket and it was like a last minute ticket and it cost more than $800. Oh. And I remember looking at my little credit card and thinking, Okay, you know, this is, but this is this unbelievable opportunity. So I did it and I got the job. And, um, and that really changed my life, being able to work at National Geographic. That was my real education where I learned about research and I learned about storytelling. So you achieve this dream you've had for such a long time at such a young age. So how does that transfer into being an author? So um, I worked there for six years and absolutely loved it. I I pretty quickly got a job on the magazine out of um, TV and I was mostly an editor, um, which I I really enjoyed, but I really wanted to be a writer. And um, as is true of a lot of places, you know, they're not really interested in the, you know, the person who works down the hall, you know, they want kind of the sexy, exciting freelance writers, right? And so, but I would beg and beg and beg and sometimes just to shut me up, they would be like, okay, Okay, you know, give her something, give her an assignment. But but being at National Geographic, whatever the assignment was, it was fascinating. Yeah. So I got to write about um, uh, rock art. I got like ancient rock art. I got to write about dinosaur eggs in Peru. I got to write about these people in Mongolia who still use eagles to hunt with. And I got to write about the Kingdom of Aksum in Ethiopia, which was just this extraordinary experience. Um, And so I loved it. I was so happy. I loved it. Um, But my husband has a company in Kansas City, and we got married. And and I remember we went on this wonderful honeymoon in Italy, and then we we parted ways in Detroit. You know, (laughs) we were like, okay, he went back to Kansas City. I'm back to my life in D.C. Um, because I, I loved Kansas City, but I thought, I don't know what I can do there that I would love as much as what I do, and I had worked so hard to get that job. And he was the person who was like, you should write a book. Um, but that sounds uh, really, really hard. <laughs> and it seemed kind of impossible to me. But, um, and then I was pregnant and I thought I should probably live with my husband at some point. It'd probably be the <laughs> traditional thing to do. Um, so I thought, okay, you know, I'll look into it and see what I can do. So out of all of the books that you've written, it, t- it tackles many different topics, many different figures, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, James Garfield. When you decide on a subject to pursue and spend all this time and resources pursuing it, what makes a story worth it for you? Yeah, that's a really, really important question. I always say the idea is the most important part of the process. You know, there are a lot of great ideas out there, but not that many of them can support 
the weight of a book, especially when you're talking about narrative nonfiction. So what I look for, uh, first of all, uh, just a great story and one that, that interests me deeply because I feel like if I'm not deeply, deeply interested in it, one, I'm not going to be, you know, want to spend five years of my life working on it. But two, I don't think anybody else is going to be interested in it because I think that comes across in the writing. Um, and I, you want a lot of, uh, you know, a great central character, but a lot of other characters that you can really put flesh on. Um, and I like to dig in deep to a kind of, a, sort of a narrow story. I don't write cradle to grave biographies, but a narrow story in somebody's life that, to me at least, is very illuminating about who they are, but also the time in which they lived. So, and, and something that is actually important in some way, so on a larger canvas. Um, but the most important thing I have to have is a ton of primary source material. So I have to be drowning, really drowning in letters and diaries and newspaper articles and books. So you just have to have so much to work with so you can have things like dialogue, mm. so you can have all those um, fascinating details that you hope will really bring a story to life. Awesome. Um, now, when most people think of research, they think of long nights spent in archives, and while there's probably plenty of that, yeah. <laughs> some of your research involves you being a little bit more hands-on as far as <laughs> traveling to all of these distant locations. Right. So uh, what are some of the most fantastic places you've been in pursuit of research? So it is the best part of the job. I often think I can't believe I get paid to do this. So um, yes, I do work a lot. I spend a lot of time in archives, which I also <laughs> love. But um, I've been really lucky that I've been able to go to all of these places where these stories played out. So first of all, with River of Doubt, I went to the to the Amazon, and when I say the Amazon, you know, I think a lot of people have been on cruises or the river cruises and have been to Manaus or something, which is fascinating. But this, this river is still incredibly, incredibly remote. So um, I had to, I literally had to go to um, this town called Porto Velho in Western Brazil. I had to hire a pilot and rent a plane and fly, fly for hours over absolutely unbroken jungle from horizon to horizon to reach this river, um, which is now, it was called the River of Doubt because they didn't know where it went. They only knew where the headwaters, and it's now the, the um, Roosevelt River, or the Rio Teodoro, because it's hard for um, Brazilians to say Roosevelt. Um, but it's still extremely remote, and um, I found a little fishing camp there. Um, this guy had um, kind of carved out of the rainforest and I said it, it felt like being on Gilligan's Island because the guy had literally he just brought in a hammer and some nails and everything else he took from the rainforest to build this oh, little wow. uh, fishing camp and that was kind of my um, base of operations but I'll tell you a quick story what happened there um, so um, I my, my husband was a foreign correspondent he was a, he was a war correspondent for many years so I always bring him along with me because he's very handy and um, uh, so we um, so we're in there, and I, and I had a translator with me, um, and this guy who, he, he um, had spent his, a lot of his career working in the Amazon. He was a journalist, um, and he was really great, but he was a strange uh, combination of being 
um, really sort of adventurous and being a hypochondriac. So he decides in the middle of it that he's having a heart attack. He's oh. just like, I'm, I'm having a heart attack, I'm sure of it. And we're like, okay, what do you wanna do? And he said, I, I wanna take the plane and go back to Puerto Vallejo. And we're in the middle of nowhere. And we're like, okay. And so he leaves and we're like, hope he comes back, I don't know. And um, so he does eventually come back, but he comes with a different pilot. And now we've had this very young, inexperienced pilot, and we have this single-engine plane. And we're in the rainforest. And so we stop one day in this rubber tapper's village, and we're there for a long time. And we come back to the plane. And again, it's a rainforest, and it's during the rainy season, so there's a lot of moisture in the air. And this guy, he doesn't um, sump the tank, all right, to let out the extra moisture. So we get into this little plane, and we're flying for a few minutes. We're about 1,500 feet up. And you know those small planes, it's really noisy in there. And, yeah. chuk, 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 chuk. and then all of a sudden it goes, chuk. and, it, and the, the water got into the engine, and the one engine went out, and we dropped like a stone. And um, my oldest child was, was at that time eight months old. She was at home in Kansas City with my parents. And my first thought was, I'm an idiot. We've just orphaned our child. And, um, and the pilot, I'll never forget, he's sort of clawing at the engine. And the translator, who's this hypercut, his eyes are wah, wah, you know, he's looking at me. And my husband's up there. And um, amazingly, he was able to restart the engine in flight, which is extremely difficult to do and rare. So we, we pulled back up and we were fine, but he was so terrified. The pilot was so terrified after that. He just wanted to get back. And, you know, I had spent a year planning this trip and I had all these things I wanted to see. And so he was basically useless to me after that. So I'm like, well, you have to, we have to keep going. But these things happened just a few months after I got back. Um, two, unfortunately, two freelance photographers for National Geographic were killed in a, in a plane crash just um, around the Rio Negro. So wow. yeah, these, these things happen. Um, but anyway, then I was able to go to South Africa for my, um, my book about Winston Churchill and the Boer War and, um, and to East Africa, um, and which I had been there um, for National Geographic with Ethiopia, so I was very excited to go back. I was in um, Kenya, Zanzibar, Tanzania, and Uganda. And I could tell one more story about Tanzania if you'll if you'll <laughs> uh, let me. Do you guys want to hear another story about Tanzania? <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, okay, so I'm in Tanzania, and uh, Richard, the, the two, um, there are three principal characters in this book, two British explorers, Richard Francis Burton and John Hanning Speak, and Burton believed, they're searching for the source of the Nile, Burton believed that it was Lake Tanganyika, which is in western um, Tanzania. And, um, and so I wanted to go there as well and see that. And it's, it's a huge, huge lake. And um, I, uh, I, wanted, I needed to go one day from one bank of it to another, and, but there was a big storm. And so the boat that I was supposed to be on took a long time to get there. And by the time it finally reached my bank of the lake, it was late and it was dark. And, um, and it's a small boat. It fits maybe eight to 10 people and it's an, a wooden open boat. And again, this, this lake is just, absolutely enormous. You feel like you're on an ocean when you're on it. And there had been a storm, so it was incredibly rough water. So you feel like you're on the storm-tossed sea. And this is a trip of a couple of hours um, to get to the other side. And um, I, I mean, the boat was like, 
rocking all the way this way. And I mean, literally we're holding on as it dipping this way and dipping that way. And I was honestly really scared. And I said to my husband, I was like, look, look how far that other bank is. If we capsize, there's no way we'll make it. We can't swim that far. And he said, don't worry about it. The crocodiles will eat us before we get there. So it's, <laughs> it's not really, and they would have. It was full of crocodiles. If you're doing research and it is boring, you're not doing it correctly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, how important is it for you when you're making these tales to stand at the places where these figures stood? What does that do for you in the process? Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I can't always do archival research um, where I am um, when I go to like in the middle of the Amazon or some parts of East Africa, but going there to see where the story played out to me is extremely, extremely important. And even if it doesn't make it precisely into the book, it definitely informs my understanding of the story. And then I think that that is transferred to the story itself. But it also often helps me answer important questions. So when I was in the Amazon, when I was first started working on this book about Theodore Roosevelt, one of the principal questions I had is like, okay, here you have Theodore Roosevelt. He's this kind of known for being this hunter, right? And his co-commander was Candido Rondon, who had spent most of his life mapping the Amazon. He was Brazilian. Um, and then you're in the, one of the richest, if not the richest ecosystem on earth, right? Packed with life. So how is it that these men are starving? I mean, they nearly starved to death. So how is that possible? But you go to this, especially this part of the Amazon, again, deep into the Amazon, and you understand immediately because it's almost completely silent. So you, you mean you're being eaten alive, right? With all these insects, but anything that you could eat, good luck finding it. You know, there are a few monkeys like way up in the canopy, a few came and kind of disappearing into the river, but um, anything you can eat is almost impossible to find. And the answer is evolution, right? So there's millions of years of evolution where everything in the Amazon has been precisely calculated to either be a predator or to try to not be prey. And both of, things, both of those things um, necessitate you being invisible, right? right. And so the, um, the Cinta Larga who lived on the banks of this river, they were incredibly good at getting through the Amazon swiftly and silently. They could find food very easily, but these men on this expedition really, really struggled to eat. Not what you would expect. No, Not I know, I know. And that's why it's so valuable to actually go to where these stories played out. Fair point. So speaking of adventures and research, I love this story. How did you end up with a fistful of uh, President Garfield's hair? How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, that was almost the end of my career, I, I feared. So I was working on um, this book about um, President Garfield, and I was at the Library of Congress in their presidential papers, which, by the way, any American can go and work in these papers. All you need is your driver's license, you get a reader ID card, and all these treasures are open to you. It's really this extraordinary place. So I would, I would really encourage you to do that if you haven't. Um, but so uh, I was there for many weeks um, working in the papers because even though Garfield was, a president, was president for only a few months before he was shot, he had been in Congress for almost 18 years. And all the other characters in this book also had their, their papers there. So it was a lot to work with. 
Um, and, uh, but at the Library of Congress, they have a lot of rules, right? As they should, these are our national treasures. So you can have one cart with you at a time. You can have, I think, maybe four or five bins on that cart, one bin on your table in front of you at a time, and one folder at a time, and they, they watch you. And I am a rule follower, so I'm, you know, being very careful. And I um, pull out this, um, this folder, and again, I've been there for a long time. I've been going through all these papers. I open it up, and there's an envelope there, and I don't know, so I, I open the envelope, and all this hair falls out onto the table. And I was like, what? And I turned the envelope over, and handwritten on the envelope was clipped from President Garfield's head on his deathbed. I'm like, crap, and I'm desperately trying to blow it back in you before anybody sees. And um, <laughs> yeah, it was, I was panic-stricken, but at the same time, I was incredibly moved by it. I mean, it was like, it, it looked like I could have cut it from my son's head yesterday, you know? And it's this unbelievably powerful reminder of the responsibility that you have when you set out to tell someone else's story, you know? And this, this was, you know, he, he's been largely forgotten, but this was a national tragedy. You know, Garfield was an incredibly brilliant, kind, brave, progressive, decent human being. And I really believe he would have been one of our great presidents had he not been killed. And he had a family who loved him. He had a country who loved him. And, and there was so much promise in him. And it was this unbelievable tragedy. So it was, it was, it's one of the reasons I always do all of my own research because it really was this profound moment for me thinking, I better get this right. Now, whether it be Theodore Roosevelt dying from malaria in the Amazon or uh, President Garfield on his deathbed, your books often have the theme of taking these historic, iconic figures and analyzing them when they're at their lowest points. That's right. What value does that serve? I, I realized very early on in the process that I wasn't interested in these these larger-than-life characters for those moments of great triumph, you know. Um, one, because um, it's hard for us to connect with them in those moments. Very few of us are going to lead nations or lead armies, um, but we can all understand how it feels to struggle, right? And we all understand um, grief, and we understand failure, and we understand frustration and sorrow and struggle, and, um, and that's how we can connect with them. It also is when you really see someone's character, you know, when they are Again, when, they're, when they're, they're grasping for a handhold or a foothold or trying to figure out life and they're at their lowest point, it's what James Garfield called the bed of the sea. When everything is stripped away and you can really see someone's character. And to me, that was far more interesting than these moments of glory. All right. Now, when we last talked, you talked about the importance of telling the whole story, especially when it comes to the native guides that often help these Western and European explorers in their exploits. Mm -hmm. Now, one you highlight, forgive me if, I'm, if I butcher this, <laughs> Sidi Mubarak Bombay. Exactly. He's deemed especially critical in your latest work, uh, River of Gods. Who was Bombay and why was he so important? 
Sidi Mubarak Bombay had been um, kidnapped as a child from his village in East Africa. He had been dragged hundreds of miles to the coast, taken to Zanzibar where he had been sold for cloth and then taken all the way to Western India where he had been enslaved for 20 years. Um, when the man who owned him died, he was given his freedom and he made his way back to East Africa. And that's where he met Burton and Speak, these two um, British explorers who had gone there to try to find the source of the Nile. And it was really, really interesting to me because um, both men immediately knew, I mean, they were hiring a lot of different porters and guides. You know, you need hundreds of men to, to make these expeditions where they go more than a thousand miles and they spend almost two years, you know, getting all the way to the lake and, and back again. Um, and it's very, very difficult, very, very dangerous work. Um, and so they are hiring a lot of people, but both of them write about how they knew immediately that they needed Sidi Mubarak Bombay on their expedition. And he spoke several languages. Um, he was incredibly hardworking, incredibly resourceful. But what really struck me is that he emerged from this unbelievable personal tragedy not with bitterness, but with kindness. And it was again and again where he was the person, he was like the linchpin for this expedition. I mean, as you might imagine, there, there are a lot of desertions because again, I mean, people are dying, people are starving, people, there's incredibly, incredibly ill. It's, they're going through all kinds of different terrain. It's just unbelievably difficult. Um, but he was always there doing people's work, making sure people were fed, making sure people were happy. You know, it was amazing. There's story after story after story. And not just that, but so he was with Burton and Speak. He helped them get to Lake Tanganyika, making them the first Europeans to reach that lake. Then he was with Speak in this unbelievable twist of fate when Speak and not Burton became the first to reach the Nyanza, the first European to reach the Nyanza, which is the largest lake in Africa and it is the source of the Nile. And Speak ends up naming for a British queen, Lake Victoria. Then Speak came back with James Grant. They went back to the Nyanza. Then Henry Morton Stanley goes to Africa to try to find David Livingston, and that's Bombay. Dr. Livingston, I presume, that was Bombay taking him to Lake Tanganyika again where he found, living, where he found Livingston. And then Bombay with Vernie Levitt Cameron became the first to cross the entire continent from east to west, sea to sea. And so I think there's no question that he is one of the most accomplished explorers in the history of African exploration, did more to help map his own continent than anyone who came from Europe. Um, but I, who had worked at National Geographic for six years, steeped in stories about exploration in Africa, had never heard his name. So I think it's hugely important um, to, to just be honest about these stories, you know, and be honest about how these, I mean, these, look, mapping our world, human curiosity about a world, that's a really good thing. Um, but we need to be honest about how that happened. And we also need to be honest about the consequences of it. You know, these explorations, the, the direct and intended consequence was colonization. Now, that right there, that discipline to tell the whole story and to identify these figures that for many generations people didn't really pay that much attention to. Where did you learn that discipline? 
Well, I mean, I learned a lot about research, uh, certainly from, from National Geographic, um, but I guess it's my own, my own background as a reader, as a voracious reader, wanting to know the whole story. And, and, and I, you know, I always spend, like I always have these huge epilogues where I tell what happened to everybody, you know, after the story took place, because I as a reader always want to know, but what happened, you know, um, and, you know, and later on in their lives. And so I try to wrap everything up. But, but again, to me, it just seems obvious. You know, you want to, to if you want to tell the story, then you need to include the people who are most important to making it happen. And um, like for my a book about Theodore Roosevelt, um, if you read any book about this expedition, or there are no other books, but if you read any discussion, like in a biography of Roosevelt or something about this expedition, they just say, oh, there were some Indians there right. who attacked the tribe. So, but who were these people, right? And, and also, another question, why didn't they just massacre Roosevelt and his men? Because they certainly could have. I mean, these people were uninvited. They were potentially dangerous. They had a lot of valuable supplies. So why didn't they kill them? I mean, if you think about it, Theodore, if they had, Theodore Roosevelt would have disappeared into the Amazon and we would have no mm -hmm. idea what happened to him. Um, and so I wanted to know who were these people. So what I did is I went to the Museum of um, uh, America, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Museum of Natural History, American Museum of Natural History in New York. And I met with their only at that time anthropologists for South America. And, um, and I'll never forget Robert Carnero. I went into his uh, office and it was this really narrow office, really tall ceilings, and it was lined with books and cabinets and papers. And I explained to him, I was trying to figure out what um, tribe lived on the banks of the River of Doubt. And I'll never forget, he goes like this to me. And then he disappears back behind some filing cabinets and I see, literally see papers flying and he comes back and he sets out this really, this old kind of yellowing, um, kind of ripped up map and he traces it and he says, it's gotta be the Cinta Larga. And so then I went to Brazil and I met with this guy named Sidney Pozuelo, who's kind of the modern day Rondon. So his job was to go into the Amazon, find these, these um, groups of people who've had no, still no contact with the outside world and not make contact with them, but know where they are so they can try to protect them. And I asked him and he said, yeah, I think it's, it's gotta be the Cinta Larga. And then I went to the river and I found a little um, outpost. They have um, the Indian um, Protection Agency in Brazil has a medical outpost where the, some of the Cinta Larga come from medical care. And I spent an entire day interviewing them. So when they speak Tupimonde, so it goes from Tupimonde to Portuguese to English and back again. Um, and I asked them all of these questions. So it, it, it matters, it really matters. If you're gonna, again, if you're going to have the audacity to think I can tell these stories, then you better do everything you can to tell them fully and accurately. And is that independent to just you, do you think? Or do you think in the wider world of authoring about stories like this, that idea of thought of telling the whole story is gaining traction? I think so. I really think it is, you know, and thank goodness, you know, that people are, um, let, you know, let's acknowledge everyone who contributed this and let's acknowledge all the things that are, are not so great about some of our heroes. You know, we have to be honest, um, you know, no, no one's perfect and especially sometimes our heroes, you know, we have to be honest. And I, I do think, I mean, there are so many nonfiction writers that I have so much respect for and so much admiration for, and I do see them go to, to great lengths 
again, to try to tell the whole story. Awesome. So what's next? What's the next story <laughs> coming out of the pipeline? You want to give us a little tease? <laughs> Well, um, I just actually signed the contract, so I probably can't tell the whole story, so I'm just getting started in it. But I will say, and I'm really excited about this, the main character is a woman. And this is something that I've been trying to do for, for many years, as you know, my Marie Curie <laughs> problem. But the problem has been that women have done extraordinary things throughout history, as we all know. But unfortunately, other people weren't paying attention or weren't writing about it, at least. You need other people, not, you need not just the, your central character writing about these, these events, but you need other people paying attention and writing about them as well. For instance, my book about Winston Churchill, so he's only 24 years old at that time. He was captured, he was put in a POW camp, he turned 25 in that POW camp, and he escapes and he makes it um, across almost 300 miles of enemy territory by himself, no map, no weapon, no compass, no, no food, he didn't speak the language. It's this extraordinary story. Um, but, but what was so valuable to me is that even though he's so young, everybody around him is already paying attention to him. It's so funny. Again and again, I would read people's letters. They would be like, I can't stand that kid, Winston Churchill. He gets on my last nerve, but he's going to be prime minister one day. And so they would write about them. So I had theirs as well. And so it's been difficult to find that about a woman, but I found one. So you, you have to one. wish me luck. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank absolutely. You. <laughs> And um, yeah, yeah, we can clap for that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you so much. Uh, one more question I wanted to ask you, then we'll get to the audience questions. Great. Um, during this whole amazing life that you've lived so far, doing all of these things, going to all these places, writing these books, what have you learned about yourself that maybe you didn't know before you started out during all this? Yeah, that's a really interesting. You always ask the best questions. They're, they're difficult questions. Um, you know, I, I've learned that I can do it. You know, I think, again, you know, coming from this little um, blue-collar town, um, I really, it it's, it's, seems audacious to yeah. think that you can write a book. And, um, and what I realized is that if it's something that you deeply love, and you actually work really, really hard at it, you can make it happen, you know? And so that, and, 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 it's, and it, it's something, I think we all understand this, that you have to prove to yourself again and again and again. But the nice thing has been that, so I'm always really, really nervous every time I start, and, and there's always a point in the process. So again, it takes me basically five years, um, between four and six, usually around five years to write write a book. So there's always a process a couple of years in where I think this is a terrible idea. <laughs> Why? This is never going to work. What, what am I going to do? This is never going to work. But at least now that I've written four books, I think, okay, I can figure <laughs> it out. I can make it work, you know. And I was laughing with somebody, you know, I, I, when I, when I first write something down, you know, it's, it's, so ugly at first. It's really, really bad. And I always think, I hope nobody sees this until I can work on it. And so, and there are times when like, I, I don't know how to fix this. You know, it's just not working. But at least I know at this point I can. You know, if I wrestle with it long enough, I can make it something that hopefully someone would want to read. Nice. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now we will move on to the audience questions. Uh, again, if you want to submit a question, Slido.com, S-L-I-D-O, enter the code 3634980. 
We'll start off with a question from Anonymous. Thank you, Anonymous. <laughs> Destiny of the Republic is my all-time favorite book. When will, be, when will we be able to see it on the big screen? Oh, that's a great question. Any Thank movie you. deals? Yeah, so actually for Destiny of the Republic, um, they are working on a Netflix series. So we'll, we'll see if it actually really happens. My um, youngest sister is a screenwriter and she's had actually a lot of success, but I know that you know, people buy a lot of things that they never make, and there are a lot of reasons why it never actually makes it. So we'll, we'll see, but, um, but it's been interesting to me. So it's this young man who, um, I remember he wrote me this uh, great letter, uh, <laughs> although it made me feel very, very old, because he said, I remember when I was in high school and I read River of Doubt, <laughs> I was like, yeah, um, and I loved it. Um, but he, and he's this extremely successful young um, screenwriter. He's worked with all these big stars, written all these um, movies and things, and he and an HBO special. And so, but he um, loved Destiny of the Republic, and he has this vision for it. And it's it's not you know, taking my book and making it into a series, it's, it's his own kind of spin on it. And it's a very kind of modern spin, but I like it. You know, it's kind of adding another layer to the story while uh, fortunately still keeping Garfield Garfield, mm -hmm. which was the most important thing to me. Um, so it's been an interesting process, but I remember I, I had a friend whose um, book was uh, turned into a movie and the movie was, the book was, amazing and the movie was not very good mm. and he said that someone said to him oh doesn't that kill you to see what happened to your book and he said nothing happened to my book there's my book right there on the shelf my book's still my book you know and so that's why I feel like uh, I, I hope it's I hope it's good but I you know I'm just sitting in my office in Kansas you know raising my <laughs> kids and telling stories about history and so every once in a while my agent and Hollywood will call me and give me an update and I think she thinks that I'm like you know, waiting by the phone, but I'm really not. I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, okay, great. You know, it'd be great if it happened. If not, that's fine too. As long as it's Candace Miller's Destiny of the Republic. That's right, right. exactly, sure. yeah, my yeah, yeah. name, front and center, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, are there any stories you really, really wanted to tell but didn't have enough primary source material. Yes, yeah, there are two, um, as William knows. So there was, one was um, Marie Curie. I spent a, a year trying to make a story about Marie Curie work, um, and uh, her personal story is just unbelievable, and it's incredibly inspirational, and I really wanted to tell it, but I, again, I don't write cradle-to-grave biographies, and there are some good biographies about her. I wanted a moment in her life, but obviously that moment would probably be the discovery of radium, um, but the problem is all the action takes place in her mind, you know, and so I would be like, well, she's still in her lab, so there's, she's still, she's still, she's working hard, so it obviously wouldn't be a page-turner. Um, so, uh, so there's that one that I finally had to walk away from. And then the other one that really broke my heart. So it was a story about Benjamin Franklin. And, um, and I'm always looking for ideas everywhere. And I uh, found this article about this house that Benjamin Franklin lived in in London. It's the only house that's still surviving, that's still standing where Franklin lived. And he lived there for 18 years and it was right before the uh, American Revolution. And, um, and he um, rented 
this house um, from uh, this, this widow and her daughter. Anyway, so the, the house was still standing, but it had become just derelict. It was falling apart. There were squatters living in it. So this article said that um, they, this, this group called the Friends of Benjamin Franklin bought it and they were renovating it. So they had these workers in the basement and they were digging and they found a bone. And then they found another bone and another bone. They end up finding 1,200 human bones in this basement. So they called the police and the police were like, these are really old bones. So they got a uh, forensic anthropologist to come. And these bones date to exactly the time when Benjamin Franklin lived in this house. So you think, founding father serial murderer? <laughs> What's happening? So what happened was that, um, the, so there's, he's renting these two rooms, it's a four room um, house near the Thames. Um, he's renting two floors of it, a four, four story house. He's renting two stories of it from this widow and her daughter, daughter Polly, who married a man named Matthew Hewson, who was a doctor and an anatomist at a time when it was illegal to perform autopsies. It was totally illegal. And so what they were doing, they actually had a tunnel running from their basement to the Thames and they would hire these resurrection men, <laughs> oh these gosh. grave robbers, to bring them bodies. And they also, just over the garden wall was a gallows. And at that time, you could be hanged for any of 400 different offenses. So you open somebody's mail, you go into the gallows. And, and to add insult to injury, you, your family had to pay for your hanging. And so they would say, they would go say, hey, you know, William, I'm sorry, you're gonna be hanged tomorrow. I'll tell you what, I'll give you a new suit of clothes and I'll pay your expenses for being hanged if I can have your body after you're dead. So that's how they were getting these bodies in there. And, um, and then, so in this one year, everything falls apart for Benjamin Franklin because he's left his family. He's, this is kind of his new family. We, uh, Matthew Houston is like a son to him, but he realized he had been a loyalist before. He'd been trying to stop the revolution. He realizes he's on the wrong side. The revolution needs to happen. He's being kicked out of England and Matthew Houston cuts himself during an autopsy and he dies from septicemia. And Polly, his wife, is expecting their third child. She's oh. pregnant with their third child. So she leaves and goes to Philadelphia with Benjamin Franklin and she raises her children there. And, um, and they are doctors there still today. So I spent so much time, and it's also, it's during the British Enlightenment. He's friends with Erasmus Darwin. And it's this incredible story. And I know, I know, I mean, there were no medical schools in the United States at that time. So he's bringing young medical students to London to study. I mean, it's, it's Benjamin Franklin. He's all about science. I, I know absolutely that he was in that basement with Matthew Houston with those, but I can't prove it. Mm -hmm. So I tracked down these family members. I was like, please tell me that you have a diary or something. And again, I need the dialogue and things like that. And they didn't have it. And so I, yeah, again, I spent a year um, working on this. And, and the address for this house is 37 Craven Street. So that was going to be my title. Okay. So, so good, right? You're, you're telling so this story. Good. I am hooked. I was like on the edge of my <laughs> seat. Wait, I'm like, why can't this be a... I know. I know. In fact, I, I mean, it, and, and I... 
nobody else write this book now. I will track <laughs> you down. I still might do it. Because my, my husband said so this, I had this idea before I had the idea for Destiny of the Republic. And um, oh, it was so painful. But, and so every time after I finish a book and I'm thinking about a new idea, I always, I'll be sitting at breakfast or something with my husband. I was like, I'll be like, you know, there's that Franklin. And he's like, no, Candace, no. You've got to let it go. But uh, it's, it hurts my heart for sure. Maybe one day. <laughs> Maybe one day. Maybe I'll find it. Oh, this one from a uh, transplant from Kansas. Oh, okay. okay, great. Now, you write a lot about historical leaders and their pursuits of glory. Are there any modern leaders that you think would make for a good subject for a book? Can you think of any modern leaders that would make a good subject for a book? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can think of a lot, actually, of modern <laughs> leaders. One that I would want to write about? Probably not. You know, I like my um, subjects to be farther back mm. in time, you know. Um, part of it is, I, uh, what if they don't like it? You know, that's awkward. And, um, and I, I just love to, I love to work through letters and diaries. And I also love kind of the atmospherics of like the Victorian age or the sure. Edwardian age. You know, I love that. I love sort of describing um, life at that time. That's part of the process for me. So yeah, I mean, I think um, certainly, you know, there's a lot, uh, a lot out there for, for other writers, just not for me. All right. Um, oh, how many topics do you preliminarily research before deciding on, before deciding that you're gonna write a book about it? Do you have like a list? Um, I do have a lot of ideas, um, and I'll, you know, go down different avenues, um, and, but usually they peter out for me pretty, pretty quickly, and so um, it is kind of the, the rare one that I will keep going on, and I do do a lot, a lot of research um, before I write the proposal. That's why, I, you know, those, those other ideas that I had that didn't work out, um, I hadn't gotten to the proposal stage. I was trying to make sure that I would have enough primary source material and, and, a, uh, and a rich enough story to work with um, before I committed myself. So, um, yeah, I have a file folder, a file drawer full of a lot of ideas that um, should never see the light of day. Um, but I, uh, so I'm always looking for ideas and so I love talking to people, you know, sometimes people give me ideas too and, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely look into them. I mean, it, it, even if it doesn't end in a book, it's so fascinating for me and it's this, I mean, my life is just like one long education. Hmm. Again, I can't believe that I get to go to these places but also that my job is literally to learn. So it's really, it's, it's one of the best parts of the job. So as a best-selling author, who do you read? Um, I read a lot of narrative nonfiction. I love Eric Larson, Laura Hillenbrand, um, Barbara Tuckman, Annette Gordon-Reed. Um, I also love, I, li I read a lot of fiction actually in my free time because um, in my working life, I read so much nonfiction, which I really love. But, but I also, you know, I was an English major, so I love some of the classics, but I, we were talking about mysteries. I love like Anne Cleves and Louise Penny, you know, that's really fun for me. But we were also talking about, I also um, love poetry. And um, I, when I was studying um, English, I read a lot of poetry and really loved it, but I had really gotten away from it. And recently, um, just last fall, I had someone uh, I love very much was very, very sick. And I felt like I needed something, you know, some sort of, to me, reading is many things. It's, you know, it's, it's education, it's entertainment, but it's also 
sort of a friend, you know, often I, I look at books as sort of a friend and as it can be a, a comfort sometimes in some ways. And I really wanted um, poetry back in my life. And, and I have a lot of friends who actually know a lot about poetry I could have turned to for advice, but I feel like poetry reading is a particularly um, personal kind of reading. Sure. It's kind of an intimate experience. So I kind of wanted to find my own way. Um, so what I did is I actually just bought uh, a, a poem a day book, one of those poem oh, okay. a day, and I didn't hold out much hope really for it, but I really was amazed. I mean, I was introduced to a lot of new poets. I was, I, I was sort of reminded of some poets that I used to love. There were some that weren't really for me, um, but it was this, uh, it was exactly what I needed. And what I started to do is I would, some of my favorites, like I especially loved um, Robert Hayden is one of my favorites, Mary Oliver, um, Maya Angelou, uh, Emily Dickinson. So kind of really a wide range of poets. But what I would do is I would have a favorite and I would just take a picture of it in my book and I would send it to my two best friends and to my sisters. And so I just started sharing these, these poems with them and it, um, and it connected me to them. I think that's another thing that books and poetry and everything do. It, it, it connects you to other people and um, it's really been this uh, really great enriching part of my life. I'm really grateful for it. Is there any particular style speak to you, haiku, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I love, um, I love nature, so Mary Oliver poems. I guess I love the, the um, a, a more spare kind of writing, a cleaner mm. kind of spare. There are some poems that I read and I think, I do not understand. I have <laughs> yeah. no idea what they're trying to say here, you know. Um, but some really, um, I think it was Robert Frost who said, they can cause a mortal wound. And wow. you really do feel like sometimes it, uh, it really, really hits you and it will stay with you. And those are the kinds of poems that I love. Okay. Um, this one is from Sean or Seen. Uh, a percentage of your published work has illuminated stories that follow rivers. Uh, <laughs> is that coincidental or is there something in particular about rivers that draws you in? I do love rivers, but it is coincidental. It's just like, um, you know, I, after my first two books, people were like, oh, she writes about presidents. Um, but <laughs> it actually, I'm just looking for a great story, you know, and um, with River of Doubt, it was, uh, you know, this unbelievable gift to have this, this story where it's set in the Amazon. And so, you know, all my training at National Geographic, I can talk about natural history and evolution. And there are all these, um, you know, again, murder and drowning and Roosevelt nearly taking his own life. And we've got Theodore Roosevelt set in the middle of it. So it was just this great, great story. Um, and then with my bookend uh, river story, um, and I did think when I, when I decided to tell the story, I was like, oh, people will be like, oh, it's another river. Um, <laughs> but, um, but this was a story I had heard 20 years earlier when I worked at National Geographic, and I was fascinated by the story about of the friendship between these two men, Burton and Speak, and the betrayal of that friendship. Um, but it wasn't until I read about Sidi Mubarak Bombay, I thought, okay, this is a story I really, really want to tell. Mm. So, yeah, so it's really just coincidence. It's the, it's the story that matters to me. Stop looking into it. It's just a coincidence. <laughs> That's right. Um, this one from Joel Sartor. How much of your time is actually spent writing, and what times of day do you start and end? He's just trying to get a handle on how disciplined you are. Is this Joel Sartori? 
the oh, photographer? I, I butchered your name, sir. I'm sorry. But uh, yeah. Wow, no, no. If it's the photographer, he was, he's a National Geographic photographer. I would be in, um, incredibly honored. He's one of my, fa he's, a, he's just an amazing photographer. Um, so I'm sorry. Well, I got I got distracted <laughs> by the name Joel. <laughs> I don't know. How I much of wrong. your How much of your time is uh, spent writing when you do enter the writing process? Is it like a eight hours a day? Do you do it six days a week, five days a week? Um, so um, you know, the last 20 years of my life have been books and babies. So uh, I my um, when I got my first contract, I was expecting my first child, and and now they're growing up on me. But but so. So it's been um, worked around, especially once they're in school. It's really, um, I, I, I take them to school, um, I go to work, I close the door, and I go back in time. I always feel like my office is like this, this time capsule. So I close the door, and I'm immediately, you know, in 1881 or 1914 or whatever the time period is, and, um, and I really immerse myself. And then, you know, it's 3 o'clock, it's time to go pick them up and it's like somebody took me by the back of the neck and just like pulled me out. And, um, but I, I think that's actually been a gift. You know, I'm a little bit worried about when my youngest is a, is a freshman in high school and when I'm like, oh, I'm going to have all day. You know, it's, it's, right now I'm forced to be disciplined, you know, and so I, I kind of like having that. So I think I'm going to kind of keep those hours. Of course, I, I work in the evening when I can, you know, after everybody's like off to bed or whatever, if there's something I need to work on. Or also, I'm a big believer in latent learning. And um, for me at this point in my life, what that means is that a lot of times I'm working on something, like I said, and I'm really struggling with how to tell it or how to um, you know, ex describe some, some moment in time. And I really can't figure it out. And I go to bed and my mind keeps working on it, you know, and I think it's true for like, if you're trying to learn the piano sure. or whatever it is you're trying to learn, you really work, you have, first you have to, I always tell my kids, first you have to put the work in, right? You have to struggle with it first. But then you stop and you back away and especially if it's sleeping or sometimes, you know, I'll be doing laundry or I'll be like in the pickup line for my, for my son or something and all of a sudden, there's the answer. And it just is this gift, right? Because my, my mind's been kind of churning away on it and I figure it out and then I'm scrambling for paper. What I do a lot of times is I'll call myself <laughs> and I'll just leave myself a message. Candace, this is the way you're going to fix that. You know, do this. And then I'll get to my work. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I figured it out earlier. And um, so those are just kind of, I, I love the way the mind works, you know? And um, so that's what I do. I, I work kind of between drop off and pick up and then my mind continues to churn away. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been in your office and one of your children needed you and they approach the office door and your husband's like, no, don't, yeah. she's, she's in 1800s right now, don't, don't knock on the door. Yeah, yeah, well, I do, I have an office in my husband's building, which is kind of nice, you know, because okay. that way I have to take a shower, get dressed, you know, <laughs> brush my teeth, people might see me. Um, but sometimes um, what happens, sometimes I'll be at home when I'm having to do an interview or something. And I remember one time when my daughter was really little, I was doing a live radio interview over the phone and she got on another, phone in the house and it was right around Christmas and she started singing a Christmas song on the phone I'm like oh, can somebody get Emery you know yeah so the, these things happen but oh, uh, that's adorable and uh, I think we got time for one more question 
Uh, let me try to find a good one for you. Um, okay, so what advice would you give to someone who finds it hard to find stories worth telling? Yeah, and I mean, to me, there's so many stories worth telling. There really are. And you just have to keep looking. You just have to read and read and read. And, um, and you have to kind of open your mind. You know, I remember, my, as I said, my husband was a journalist. And I remember him telling me when he had started out, um, he had been given some assignment and he went to check it out and he came back to his editor and he's like, it's just, there's not, a, there's not enough there, you know? And his editor was like, that's you, that's not the story. Mm. You need to go back and look harder. And, 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 and if there's one thing I learned at National Geographic, it's that everything is fascinating if you look harder. I mean, we would do stories on sand, you know? And it would be <laughs> fascinating. Honestly, it would end up being fascinating. So if, if you look hard enough at any subject, there's an incredible story there. You just have to dig deeper. Words to live by. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, one more time for Candace Muller, please. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Ryan. You've been listening to a replay of the 2022 Governor's Lecture in the Humanities that was co-sponsored by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, Humanities Nebraska, and the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Issues. The guest speaker was noted historian and author Candace Millard in a conversation and Q&A session with William Padmore from Nebraska Public Media. This has been Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, I thank you for your time this Sunday morning. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln.